this meeting with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can. Who is going to come up in just a moment is uh, Gary from Indianapolis, and uh, I don't know anything about Gary. Uh, so I have nothing to tell you, uh, except that like every other alcoholic that I've ever met in AA, uh, I feel totally connected to you and I just feel like I can identify and there is something that happens between alcoholics that is so extraordinary and so magical and I have felt it happening over and over again uh, the past two days and I look forward uh, to it happening again when I hear your story, which I'm sure if you're an alcoholic like me, I will relate to and enjoy. So thank you and here's Gary. Gary, I'm not a Holland. My dry date's December 3rd, 1964. Uh, uh, visiting with Sarah there for a minute, uh, a member of Mike and my home group is a young lady named Betsy, and she and Sarah went to school here, I think, together. Not that long ago, I'm looking at you. It can't be that long ago. Um, boy, what a privilege to be here. Uh, uh, Julie, my bride Julie there, and I love to uh, come to New York any chance we get, and it's delightful to come be, just to be with you people and all of that. I, I, it's a privilege to be with all of you, even this bunch of yahoos around the table. Uh, but uh, uh, that's not why we're here, but it doesn't hurt. So thank you very much for having me here. Uh, December 3rd, 1964, I found myself in a conversation with my wife and her dad. We were having that talk. You relate to that talk, I assume. And uh, that talk was, what are we going to do with Gary? And... Uh, uh, at times it was like I wasn't there, and uh, but I was, and, and at times I don't think I was there. But I, uh, uh, we talked about what to do, and this was in Cheyenne, Wyoming, in 1964. And all they knew to do with drunks there at that point in time, uh, at least this current family, uh, was to send them to the Wyoming State Hospital, which was 400 miles away in a town called Evanston, Wyoming. And uh, 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 that's what they did. In fact, Julie had an uncle that had been up there two or three times and, and uh, had failed the courses three times and be sent back. And so they asked me if I would go there, and I agreed to if my father-in-law would take me. And uh, uh, he says, no, I won't take you, but I'll put you on the next bus. They'll take you up there, and he did, and, and, and I got on the bus, and, and I got off the bus in Rock Springs and bought a pint, and for some reason I got back on the bus. That was not my nature. That's not what I did. I didn't very seldom fulfill anything I told anybody I was going to do. 
years later, I picked up a sponsor who had a quick definition of honesty as doing what you say and saying what you do. And I thought, man, that's an awful lot to live up to with my track record. So anyway, I got there, and that was the time that things started. Got to tell you, years later, after been sober several years, Julie and I and our three daughters were in, in Cheyenne for Thanksgiving, I think it was, and we're sitting down at the dining room table, and uh, Julie's dad said to me, he says, Gary, do you remember the day you went to the nut house? And I said, yeah, yeah, why? He says, I didn't care which bus you got on, just as long as it was leaving Cheyenne. <laughs> and so, kind of gives you a feeling for where we were at. So on that day, I arrived at the nut house. It was a month or so before my 25th birthday, and uh, I looked like a very tired 12-year-old. Uh, uh, I've always appeared younger than I am, and, and uh, even then it was. But I, uh, I do recall that I, I, uh, I was just numb, I think. They asked me when I entered the door if I, if I was there for the alcoholism rehabilitation program, and I said, yeah, but I, I didn't know. I, I, it, I didn't know. I just, okay, I'll do that. I thought the alternative was, was another ward on the hospital, and that didn't seem like a good idea. But anyway, that was the beginning of things to come, and, and to kind of get where I want to go with this. Uh, oh, my bride's name is Julie, and... I wanted to thank Katie for uh, mentioning my name at the podium. Julie has two Mr. Brown Needs His Ass Kick t-shirts. <laughs> and a sweatshirt. <laughs> she doesn't wear them to the Al-Anon meeting because she don't think the girls will understand. But... <laughs> I uh, I got my health back there. I, when I got there, I, I was uh, I was six foot two inches tall, weighed something less than 130 pounds, hadn't been eating well, <laughs> hadn't been eating at all because food money took away from money you needed it for, and, and uh, with that. So, but I didn't realize I was in the bad shape as I was, and uh, they locked me in a little room for I think three or four days. And it uh, had one window about like that in the door. You'd look at the room, look out the window, and there'd be a nose pressed up against the glass on the other side looking in. And, uh, and I don't think that bothered me much. And uh, uh, they kept me medicated with drugs you know most you never heard of, such as peraldehyde and Noctec. And all I can tell you is uh, uh, in that nut house, there seemed to be some regular old alcoholics that would show up there in December. And it might have been for the cold, and it might have been for the peraldehyde. We don't know which, but uh, they would they would show up there. But I, I didn't. It did what I needed, I guess. I don't know. And after I'd been in there and moved in on the alcoholic ward, I uh, uh, started learning about AA. I was attracted to AA because they told us if we didn't go to the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings there, I had to change wards. So I was attracted to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd seen what was in those warrants. And I almost hate telling part of this story because the truth is I don't remember much of it, and I'm not sure I had it right when I thought I did. Uh, uh, 
uh, we went to AA meetings, and then we had an AA meeting. It was just the alcoholics on the ward, and uh, uh, there were talk about the steps. Uh, this one particular meeting, and uh, it seemed to be my turn to talk, and uh, I, I, I just thought it was crazy. I didn't know anything about this God bit. God was not a part of normal conversation in my home as a kid growing up, unless you were swearing. Uh, uh, and it was, I guess it happened a lot, now I think about it. And uh, uh, that, and so the only time I'd seen anybody that uh, my parents had to do with that had a religious background at all was during a drought. Wyoming didn't get much rain anyway. And when they say there's a drought, it's by God dry. It's a drought. And my dad would go to the Mormon's house and ask him to pray for rain. Sometimes it rained. <laughs> Henry Standing Bear said one time, do you know what the most important thing is about a rain dance? <laughs> Timing. <laughs> so in, anyway, that was all I knew about religion or God or any of that stuff. And I'm hearing these people come into the nut house and talking about God and praying and uh, that kind of thing. And, and I don't know why. I didn't have reason to, but it kind of made me feel a little squirmy. I didn't know anybody that, that did that. And that was just one of all the crazy things going on in my mind as we were going along. Flash forward, I was in that place for four months. That was the normal stay. I didn't get extended for any reason uh, for alcoholics. And, and uh, uh, a couple of months later, I'm sitting down in the canteen drinking coffee with a few other alcoholics, and they're talking about what they're going to do when they get out of there. You know, and it, kind of normal AA lies going around the table. Uh, uh, we were we were talking about what we were going to do when we get out, and one guy wanted to go back to Fort Bridger and get the ranch back. The other one wanted to get the family back, and just, you know, all these things are doing it. For some reason, they got around to me, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm in a room full of has-beens, and I'm a never-was. I've not done a damn thing. But they looked at me like it was my turn to talk, and I said, I have no idea what I... I'm going to do when I get out of here. Uh, 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 I just know I don't ever want to take another drink. And I heard myself say that. I had never thought that. I, that, that was so new to me that uh, I just knew it was true. I didn't know why uh, with that. And then two months later when I nut that house, and I'm on, left that nut house, and I'm back uh, on the bus going back to Cheyenne. And uh, I, uh, I'm scared. I got the same hole in the belly with the wind blowing through it I had four months before, and I went in there. I had my physical health back. I had, I had a place to go. Julian and our daughters were, were waiting for me, sort of. They, they, they had, they'd had a tough time living hither and yon because the house was gone that we had when I, uh, with that, and she was living with parents and with cousins and getting along and dragging the girls around. It wasn't any picnic for her. Uh, with that, and I, uh, uh, of course, I wasn't thinking about them at any point in time when I was there, other than wonder if they could send me some money. Uh, I uh, came home, and uh, just a real quick story there uh, to get where I'm going with this. I got off the bus in Cheyenne in the morning at, at about 2:30 in the morning, and in Cheyenne, Wyoming, at 2:30 in the morning, there's not much going on. I, I hear nobody sleeps in New York, but by God, they do in Cheyenne. And, and uh, 
and <laughs> I, uh, I walked into the bus depot uh, and uh, uh, figured, well, I just gonna have to walk on out to Julie's parents' house, which I don't know, a mile, mile and a half, no big deal uh, with that. And uh, there was an old police detective there named Lloyd, Lloyd Gallion. And he came up to me and, and he said, Gary, he said, uh, you going out to the Bailey home? And I said, yeah. He said, I'll give you a ride. Come on. That wasn't the first time Lloyd had given me a ride somewhere. But it was the most pleasant by far. Uh, and I, we're on the way over there. And, and, uh, uh, and he says, you know, Gary, there are just some people that shouldn't drink. And I said, so you know where I've been? He says, Gary, I've known where you've been since you were 16 years old. And I always bring that story up because I think as we're looking over our men's and things where we're going with that, we look over our lives and all of us have had one of those people in our lives that the Denver Young People's Group used to call an Eskimo that would show up your life and help it out. If you've not heard the Eskimo story, it's just about, about three, three guys sitting in a bar in Alaska talking about whether or not there's a God. And this one guy says, I know for a fact there isn't. And all that, I don't care what you guys say in these crazy things you're talking about there ain't no god and he says i was sitting out here last winter in that worst blizzard we ever had i was 30 miles away from town stranded out there the last dog had died and i'm laying i'm just going to lay there and freeze to death he says i know damn well there ain't no god and they said, you're sitting here how can you possibly say that he says some dumb ask damn eskimo came along and drug me into town and, uh, so you always have these Eskimos out there that showed up out of nowhere and that to, to kind of do that. And uh, that's the last I've seen of Lloyd. I don't know anything more about him. But that kind of goes into where I hope to end up when I get, when I get going on this. I uh, uh, got a free ride to college. And I took advantage of it because I'd had to look for work otherwise. And uh, I got a four-year degree and three years in the summer in accounting at the University of Wyoming. And we packed Julie and the kids up, and we went to uh, to Denver, and where after a series of circumstances in Denver, I still was very, very, uh, uh, I, I, I gained some weight back. I think I got up to about 175 after I got out of the nut house there and all that, and, and uh, began to think I looked a little bit about a, like a man. I wasn't sure, but... Uh, uh, things were changing physically. I was doing better. I, I fooled myself and I fooled my dad when I did well in college. There were two AA meetings a week in Laramie, one on Monday and one on uh, Friday, I think. If, this, uh, if somebody showed up, uh, there were two scheduled meetings a week. That's probably the other way I would phrase that. And uh, uh, after I'd been there for a while, they, uh, they uh, asked if I would be the treasurer. And I said, of course. I needed the money. <laughs> and uh, this is going to go into a men's story, too, Charlie. So, don't. <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, uh, I would go, to, you know, I'd go down there and I'd open up the room for the meeting. And, and uh, it was on the second floor over a corner of an old drugstore. And, and uh, uh, you'd look out the window. So I'd go in there and I'd make a 30-cup pot of coffee. And... Uh, and really hope somebody would come along to drink it. And oftentimes they didn't. So I'd, I'd take my books down there and study if, during the time of the meeting the nights nobody would show up. 
And I remember the night I'm sitting there, I'm dry, I'm going to AA, and I'm doing everything I'm told to do about AA at that point in time. There wasn't a whole lot of advice in this little town. And uh, so I was, I was, you know, setting up the room, making the coffee. And I'm sitting there trying to study, and I look up, and I'm looking out the window at the Buffalo Bar across the street. I had one of those neon lights that go Buffalo, Buffalo. And uh, uh, sitting there looking at it. Had a bee out of it on the neon light. The bee was gone. Actually, it said Buffalo, Buffalo. <laughs> and uh, and I'm looking out that window, and I said one of the first prayers I think I said in AA. I said, God, please help me. I can't stand this much. This is most. This is just so miserable. I can't do it. It was the most painful time of my life when I was first sober there. And I really didn't have many people to run to. My best buddy in AA there was a drug addict who didn't have a drinking problem. We fished him out of the nut house the day I got home, uh, out of the jail the day I got home from the nut house. A guy named Jim knocked on my par- her parents' door. And her dad says, Gary, this guy wants to talk to you. And so I went over there and said, hi. He says, my name's Jim. He says, you're not doing anything tonight, are you? And I said, no, why? And he said, I'll come by and get you. We're going to go to an AA meeting. And he said, but first we've got to stop by the jail and fish this guy out of the jail there and take him to uh, the meeting. And so we got down there, and I was familiar with that jail. And, and, uh, and so I went in to get him, and, and uh, he looked up the stairs to the, the holding pen, and I look up there and see who was waiting to come downstairs. And I'm thinking, I'll leave. I don't want to be anywhere with that guy. It, he, he's just no damn good. And he looked up and they looked down at me from the stairs. He said, I don't care how bad it is. I'm not going out of here with him. And uh, what we did, we went to the meeting and all that. And then later on, he ended up in Laramie going to school with me. And so we would go to AA meetings together. This is before there was any discussion that I'm aware of that, that uh, what do you do with a drug addict in Laramie, Wyoming, when there's only AA and there's nowhere else to send him. So they came into it. And we protected each other and lied for each other with our, each other's wives and what we were doing when we were gone and did probably everything wrong you could possibly do. Uh, and But we, I didn't drink and he didn't do anything else, I don't think. And I graduated from school and, and uh, uh, moved to Denver. I went to a job in a, in a large oil company, so I thought for sure, well, this is Wyoming and the oil business and I'm going to get rich for sure. And... Uh, that didn't work, but I had a nice job there, and I started going to AA meetings in Denver. And it was different. I went to this one meeting. As it turned out, oh, never mind. It, it, it turned out to be a meeting that uh, uh, my friend Bob O went to when he first moved to Denver. It was just an awful meeting. It was just so bad. Uh, uh, it was run by these two people, uh, and uh, and. Uh, Wayne, and I don't remember her name, thank God. Uh, I, uh, another young guy showed up at that meeting, and uh, we left the meeting thinking we needed to change A entirely, starting with the first portion of the fifth chapter. And uh, I think we went over to his house to discuss how to do that when his wife threw us out. She thought we were the two miserable most miserable AA members she'd ever seen and she didn't want us in her kitchen and so she says go, why don't you go down to downtown Denver there's the Denver Young People's AA group down there we think you ought to go down to that 
My friend Joe got all pumped up, and he says, well, Brown, he said, let's go do that. The girls there got to be better looking anyway. <laughs> well, they were. Don't laugh. Uh, uh, but that's how we got there. And that's the first place I ever heard anybody but talk about taking the 12 steps in order uh, 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 and using the book Alcoholics. And I had not heard that in, in nearly four years, and nobody had ever said that. I don't, I don't think anybody ever told me to take them in order before I got there. And so that was the beginning of a whole bunch of things happened to me. And those were the guys and the gals that got me started in the program in A&A and that sort of thing. So they took me to the other meetings in town where that was going, going on and stopped that. And I became friends with, with some people that a lot of people were afraid of. And they, they called them the God Squad. And, and uh, they were big book thumpers by God thumpers, too. They weren't kidding. With it. And there was one great big guy named Big Frank. Of course, he called him Big Frank. And uh, I learned a lot from Frank uh, from the time I was there. And he didn't really pull any punches. But he always seemed to care for me. And if he wanted to make sure I got a point, he'd hit me. With, he had a finger with about a size 35 ring on it. Listen, kid, he'd say. And he'd hit me in the chest. And make sure I got it. He got my attention. And then we, we uh, uh, through a series of circumstances, uh, we did everything in AA. We had our two meetings a week. I had a closed discussion on a, on a weeknight. And on Sunday nights, we met at the York Street Club, and it was an open speaker meeting. And the York Street Club Sunday night meeting would be jammed with people. They'd come down to the young people's meeting just to see who the hell was coming in next. And uh, uh, it was fun, and it was a phenomenon, and, and, and uh, we had a great thing going there. It's just we went on 12 steps to call us together, uh, and I, so now you go to meetings and you see the people running to meetings these days. It seems, and, and they're all going home after the meetings. I always thought you had to go out and drink about a quart of coffee and eat about a half a quart of ice cream, and, and uh, but they don't seem to be doing that now, and, and or maybe I'm just going to the wrong meetings. But. I uh, uh, got involved uh, when we got a 12-step call from a guy named Mac Cheater out of Winnipeg who uh, came to Indianapolis in 75. I know Clancy doesn't remember this, but 1975 they had the International in Denver, and I'm working on the, uh, down on the floor of the convention center. They're trying to keep all these plane loads of people who were coming in for that convention. I, uh, I was down just trying to get them all that were because the whole plane load would line up to get their tickets, their registration. And my job was to get them to pick up registrations for people around them. Go back and get five or six of them. Don't all of you stand in line to get up there and do that. I, I start that at the back of the line, and they said, uh, uh, no, no, you've got to go up and ask that little guy up there. You go up and ask Clancy what to do. So I went up and told Clancy and, and, and what we needed and all that. And he stood up on a chair and said, do whatever this kid says. And they did. Uh, I hadn't seen that kind of power in AA before. <laughs> so we went through the steps as carefully as we could. And, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there, but what I, what I did get to with that is I don't think if I had been going through the steps any other way by myself, we were doing it together as a group. We were reading the book as anally as we could and as careful as we could. And if it gave us a course of action, it took it. If it asked us this question, we answered it. 
and, and, and that's how we got through it. And uh, I, I, at the first time, I, two things happened there. One, I, when I read that thing by myself, any time before we did it together, it's like I would read it and miss it. I'd read a paragraph or a page and set it down, and if I thought about what I just read, it was gone. It it had disappeared. Uh, I had done that. And so this time, by us going it through together and being that careful about it, uh, I was getting it, and it was making sense for me. I understood the doctor's opinion right now. I fully understood that the alcoholic of my type, once I take liquor into my system, you cannot predict when or how I'm going to stop. I just didn't stop until I got stopped. I got stopped by cops a couple of times. I got stopped by running out of money a couple of times. got stopped because I had to go to work. I didn't stop because I wanted to or thought it was a good idea. That wasn't ever part of my deal. I understood the doctor's opinion quite well. And when we started reading in the third chapter more about alcoholism there in the first page, where it said we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step to recovery. The delusion or anything like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. It's like I got it. And I don't know. There's no intellectual reason to explain why I got it right there. But now I see I'm powerless and I'm unmanageable and I can't get it uh, on my own. I, I must have some help. And it made my life easier from that point on. And we, we got through steps. We took the third step prayer together. There were uh, 14 of us at the time that we took the third step prayer together. And we read it slash prayed it out loud together, 14 guys. And a week or so later, uh, Eddie Durkin went out and drank and froze to death. But the other 13 of us are either still sober or have died sober. Uh, it's pretty fair odds. I, you, don't, you don't see that very often. In fact, those of us that are left of that and, and a few other members of the young people's group that were not a part of it are going to uh, kind of have a reunion at the Colorado State Convention next, oh, next weekend uh, with that. And so Julie and I are going to get off the airplane when we get home Sunday, get in the car Monday, and we're driving out there to, to hang with the guys, a bunch of old people now. But uh, uh, we're still going to call ourselves the Denver Young People's Group to hell with them. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I took my fifth my step with one of those guys a guy I didn't like uh, 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 got to go move on for now and we made our first going through the steps with them and our lives changed and next day we're still sober in uh, 1977 we moved to uh, Indianapolis and uh, uh, people ask me today, why did you leave Wyoming and Colorado to move to Indianapolis, Indiana? I say, we lost our minds. <laughs> and the Hoosiers will say, they we understand. I don't. Uh, we might have been. And, uh, well, why did you stay here? Well, we've got, what, we've got three generations behind us now that are pretty well embedded into Indianapolis, so we're not going anywhere. I moved there, Indiana, and in 77, when we moved there, Indianapolis had 50 AA meetings a week. 49 of them were speaker meetings, and one was a discussion meeting. And I was a new kid in town that would talk, and so they had me all over town shooting off my mouth. 
And I told them all my experience of going through the book and the steps like this uh, over time. And we took a, a group of 14 men, 13 men, finished going through the book together again after I was in Indianapolis. One of them disappeared, and we don't know where he is. I hope he didn't freeze to death. But the rest of them stayed sober and started getting this same idea of sitting people down and taking them, in, and taking them through the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and getting into taking the steps and showing them how to write inventory. None of them go out now and kick somebody in the pants and give them a big book and tell them to go write their inventory. They show them how to do it, and they may sit with them and do it and, and do that. It's not fair anymore. I, that's what happened to us originally until we figured that out. And kick in the pants, tell me go do something, so may get you a kick back. You don't know. So anyway, uh, uh, that started, and I guess in Indianapolis now today, I, I don't know, my, I, I, there might be 20, 30 workshops like that going on in the state and city on any given time. It come out from that and, and uh, that. So, in that time, two things were going on. I, uh, we, we were living, living in a strange area. Bob and I met in September of 1977 at the International Young People's Conference in Houston, and uh, uh, have been friends since then. We see each other every 15, 20 years, whether we need to or not. <laughs> He's been a great friend, and I'll tell you more about him in a little bit. Uh, uh, but I, uh, I got to thinking I was a big shot in AA because all these people were quoting things that Gary Brown said at meetings, and, and I was getting some of the other stuff that Mike referred to. He could have done it more kindly than he did yesterday, but but we uh, uh, are going on and. and AA's going, you go to a meeting, they say, well, I was around AA umpteen years and never stepped the steps and went to a workshop, my life changed. And, and I really got to thinking I was some kind of big shot in AA. That was part of the problem was that I got to thinking a lot of things. I, I, everybody's talked about it here. I was, I was spending money I didn't have. I, I, I was chipping on Julie. I, I, was, I was doing about everything wrong I could do in AA except I didn't drink. And it probably wouldn't have been long, but I'd do that. And I would, uh, was going on like that, and I had dinner with uh, a guy in AA I sponsored, a bohunk out of the steel mills in Pittsburgh. And he sits down with me, and he said, Gary, he said, when are you going to stop that? Don't you think it's time you grew up again? And uh, I thought that was pretty disrespectful to talk to your sponsor that way. But... Uh, uh, it, it, it probably was within a day or two that, that uh, uh, started on the process of getting things going. Meantime, uh, before that incident actually itself happened, I think Bob showed up in town. He, he was traveling to a convention somewhere and said he had an extra day. He wanted to stop in Indianapolis and see Julie and I. And so I, uh, uh, I was delighted with that. And he, uh, as I remember this, I, I uh, met him at the airport, and we stopped and we had a cup of coffee and, uh, and uh, somewhere. And he looked at me and he didn't think I looked too good. I think he said I looked like hell. Is what he said. And, and what's going on? And I told him that, well, they're going to uh, foreclose on the house Monday, and. Uh, Julie doesn't know that, and I'm afraid it'll kill her. 
and that's the first time I had told anybody that that was coming up and all this was coming to it. I hadn't told any of my best friends in AA or nobody with that. And I got some relief just by telling him that. I mean, I really did. It, 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 you know, it improved right there. And we're driving by downtown Indianapolis on the interstate. And Bob says, uh, where's the bank? And I said, what bank? He said, the one with the note on the house. And I said, it's all right downtown here. Why? He said, let's go talk to them. And I said, Bob, they're really tired of talk. Them guys don't want any more talk. Trust me. And he said, no. He said, let's, uh, let's go see them anyway. And so we did. And as I recall, we found a parking place across the street. We're jaywalking across the street to go into the bank. And I felt like I was going in to see the principal with my dad. And, uh, and we went in there, and uh, Bob pulled a chair up right behind the, the desk there where it'd be out, and I sat clear back by the wall. And, and uh, as I remember, an angry banker came out, a big wrinkle right down, right down there, and uh, had a stack of papers, and he sat down there, and the conversation went so Bob just very simply said, what's it take to get Gary caught up on his house payments? And uh, uh, the banker gave him a number, and Bob reached into his pocket and, and took out the cash and the traveler's checks. And 10, 15 minutes later, I was current on my house payments. And we're walking back into the house, uh, to the car, and I said, "Geez, Bob, I got to pay that back." And he said, "That's your problem." And I thought about that answer over the years and how right you were. <laughs> that was my problem. So anyway, that was one incident, and that happened, uh, frankly, during the worst of my behavior right there. But it was a great relief. And then uh, uh, let's flash forward some time. Uh, they're not too long, actually. I, 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 every time I took somebody through the, the 12 steps, I... Uh, I would try to write an inventory with them. And normally I had some juicy stuff to put in the inventory. But, but uh, I wrote inventories. I did everything. But I had always stopped at the end of the fifth step or the seventh step if I was feeling real good. And, and uh, I uh, uh, knew what I was doing. I had called a, a guy in Chicago who died a few years ago with 62 years of sobriety. I'd met Paul uh, uh, a few years in Denver ago, but I didn't like that. And, and, and I think the reason I wanted him is I knew that I needed somebody that would hold my feet to the fire. Uh, uh, the biggest reason I called him, he was a step Nazi. Uh, uh, the whole time I knew him, the 20-some years I knew him and was sponsored by him, I never saw him change his mind about a damn thing. And, and he, uh, uh, but he, he was always the right way and hard-nosed. And that, but I called him and I said, is there any possibility that a uh, 20-some-year-old alcoholic, 40-some-year-old grandfather, uh, could be going through a period of male menopause? And Paul said, well, maybe. He says, but if you go review your first three steps, write another inventory, and take, come up here and take some fifth steps and make some amends, I think you'll feel better. And I told him I'd do anything he said. I'd never meant that more in AA about anything. I was, I'd do anything Paul told me. And I did. I went home and, and, and I wrote another inventory. 
with that. And it was all current stuff. The resentment list was all current stuff, which ought to scare you. Because that tells you I can stone sober cause as much or more harm sober as I can drunk. Because I had done it. And I went down, the, went down the fear list. It didn't matter if they were young or old because they hadn't gone away. And, and uh, I still had them. And when I went down the conduct list, I went back and worked on it harder than I'd ever done in my life. I did the before inventories and back inventories and went all the way down through it. And Katie answered all nine questions. Uh, uh, and I called Paul and I said I was done with the inventory and he told me to be up there in, in uh, LaGrange and by 4.30 on a Friday, gave me a list of a motel up there. And I got up there and found the motel and ran across the street and got a cup of coffee and came back to it. And there was a knock on the door and a stone stranger I'd never seen before stood there. And he said his name was Dennis O'Brien. He was 29 years sober and he was there to swap fist steps with me. And he went over and he takes the only chair in the room, which still irritates me, and, uh, and opens up the three ring binder and starts reading inventory me. He said, I want to go first so you'll know what to do. And so he did. He read inventory to me, and I sat down, and I opened up my notebook, and I read inventory to him. We compared notes because I'd picked up some. It's interesting, you know, we were both fairly long-term sober and both been doing the same damn thing. Uh, with that, you, you thought I had, he had something I'd missed. It wasn't anything new, but I'd missed it. And, and I had something he'd missed, which exchanged notes, and he left, and I go get another cup of coffee, and there's another guy at the door, 21 years sober, and Chuck's there to swap fist steps with me, and he's going to go first, so I don't know what to do. And so by uh, noon Sunday, I'd done that nine times. At that time, uh, Paul was uh, probably about 35 years sober uh, with that, and, and I, I'm swapping fist steps with guys two or three years sober. But they had something going I had never done in AA yet. And so uh, uh, that Sunday, after we're finished, I, I uh, am told to meet them for breakfast, some of them for breakfast at a pancake shop over on, on LaGrange Boulevard. And uh, I go there, and four or five of them there, I'm thinking it's over, the heat's off and all that. And we finish our breakfast, and they say, Gary, get your pad and pencil out. We're going to help you with your amends list. And they had really good memories. Uh, and... Uh, so we went down that amends list and we picked them off all of there and wrote them in the list. And then Paul says, now, Gary, how about all those amends you owe that aren't on your inventory? What about those? And so then we went down there and I'm answering questions and most of them are about money. Well, Julie and I had borrowed money from anybody and everybody, you know, parents, both her parents, my parents from, from uh, AA members. Dial finance, good old, di everybody's got a dial finance in their history, God. And then, uh, uh, and so we listed all of those things, and by the time that morning is over, those guys are looking at me and they say, how the hell did you stay sober this long without having making any amends? There's no good answer for that, other than it must be God, because uh, in 12-step work, I was, we were always chasing drunks and Things like that, but I never obviously wasn't working with them. And uh, 
I, uh, I didn't know the answer beyond. Those guys believe and still believe that anybody with substantial sobriety that goes back out, goes back out with unmade amends. Now, you define substantial sobriety. It could be three years, and we've seen them go out and die at 40 years uh, with that. So whatever it is, get your amends made. I don't know that's going to ensure you won't go back out, but I think it's not going to hurt. Uh, I'm sure. So anyway, uh, went home, and I sat down with Julie, and we looked at that amends list, and she looked at it with me, and she said uh, that his, those amends were as much hers as they were mine, because she was with me at many of those visits to borrow money. Uh, uh, with that, and it's kind of, I, and I can't honestly tell you. I know that when I was telling you, I would pay it right back by the terms of the agreement when I said that. I think I was telling you the truth. But an hour later, I don't think I had any intentions of paying them back when they did that. Just looking back on our behavior when we did that. Not speaking for Julie, I'm speaking for me. So anyway, we put out this big list and we started working on it. And every payday, I'd go upstairs and, and pay everybody off the list I could. Keep enough money for current debt, and if the kids needed shoes or books or something for school, and then run broke till the next payday, and we were doing that, and that went on for quite a while. And then a day came down where I had done that for a while, and I was a little discouraged, and I went down looking to my Al-Anon wife. I said, I don't think I'm capable of making enough money to ever pay all this money back. I just don't think I can do it. And uh, I thought I was going to get a little sympathy. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't. Next morning she comes in and we get up for breakfast. She says she has an idea. And when your wife in the early in the morning says she has an idea, you probably ought to listen. But your first impulse is to get the hell out of there and go to work. And... Uh, her idea was that, that uh, I'd had the same job for quite a while and done well at it and had a, uh, accumulated a, a lot of money in a 401k retirement plan. And, and uh, she said, Gary, we could, we, could, we could take out all your retirement. We can sell this house. It's appreciated a lot, I think, since we bought the house. It's in pretty good shape. And we could buy a trailer house to live in and we can pay off all of those amends and, and I, she thought there'd be a little bit left to pay off any current debt too and that and I'm thinking my god she can't be serious and, but I knew she was and so I, I ran out the door to go to work to get away from her <laughs> and in the meantime during the day I called Paul and I told him what we had talked about you know, we were going to sell the house and cash in the retirement and all that and pay off all the amends and buy a trailer house to live in. I says, that just sounds so crazy to me, Paul. What do you think? And he said it was the sanest thing he'd heard me say in 20 years. Was it my idea? And I said, no, it was Julie's. And he said he thought so. <laughs> so. So, uh, uh, well, we did that. It took a few months to get the house sold and and that, and the day we sold it, we're sitting down and we're and we're uh, paying everybody off, writing the checks and sending them, making phone calls. And I called Bob, and I said, Bob, give me your address. We're in shape to send you that money back you gave us all those years ago. 
And he laughed. And I said, what's so funny? And I think the direct quote is, is, well, cowboy, it's like this. And he told me that in his business that at one time they were making money almost faster than they could spend it. But Congress had changed the laws on that, on that kind of investments and that sort of thing, and the cash, cash flow died off. And, and, uh, and as I recall, you were even on an allowance. And, and, uh, that, and you said, but, you know, the strangest things happen. He says, I haven't told many people. I haven't talked about this in the podium. I haven't. But he says, I, I talk to my sponsor every day about it to make sure I'm being honest about it. Uh, and that, but... Uh, I haven't done that, and so anyway, he gave me the he gave me the uh, he gave me the rest of the stories. What he gave me, I don't know where I'm going. And, and he said, "But I, uh, uh, what's happening today is I'm go down to the mailbox a couple three times a week and get the mail. Every so often, he says we've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, Linda and I pray about who we can help with with the money. Our tithe is to help alcoholics we see out there that need help." Uh, with that, and so since I, we started that, and now I'm in a little trouble financially and that sort of thing, I go down to the mailbox and get my, and every week or so in there, there's a check in there from somebody we've helped out that have, have returned the money. And, and uh, uh, so I, I got to be one of those guys, and I think I, that's one of the first times that I, I was able to really realize a relationship in AA is one of those big deals that goes all the way around and then it comes back around. Uh, and and it, it certainly did for us in that case. Uh, uh, so we got that taken care of, and we did. The house sold, and uh, we moved into a mobile home. That's, a little, that's got a little bit more class than calling it a trailer house. Uh, <laughs> it became a mobile home then. But you could hook it up and trailer it anywhere you wanted to. Uh, And we lived there for, for uh, I don't remember anymore, five years. And, uh, and then uh, uh, Julie wanted to start this nesting thing again. And so we bought a house. And, and, and what you got to understand is why we've never had a lot of money, and, and we don't make a lot of money now, but we haven't been in trouble financially anywhere close to what we were back then. It, it seems I learned a lesson with there. And, and I was thinking, well, while Bob was talking, that uh, there was one instance where, where Bob and I were together and we were talking about fear. And I think you had just finished your work with the psychologist or in the psychiatrist and we're in the middle of it uh, with that. And, and I was explaining something I was doing and you told me that I was afraid of failure uh, with that. And the definition of that is how that goes and the way I did it was... If I had a project in front of me I needed to do, my process would be to do a half-assed job because I knew it was going to fall apart anyway. Instead of giving something 100% and giving the results to God, I was doing that. And I never forgot that. And that was a great help to me in dealing with that over the years because I would always remember that, that conversation over the years since then. Uh, uh, with that, so not only am I thanking you for the loan, you thanked me a number of times, and again this morning with that great talk. I uh, spent some time here recently uh, working with a lot of people. Uh, uh, that one, let me back up a little bit. Uh, uh, 
our three daughters are, are uh, Carrie's 54 and Patty's 52, and uh, no, she turned 53 this month. And our youngest daughter turns 50 on the 31st of this month. And uh, 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 Carrie, the oldest one, is either the world's oldest Alateen, or uh, certainly a long-term member of Al-Anon. And, and Patty has taken on the responsibility of adopting and raising her grandchildren. Uh, that's that Jerry Springer story I don't have time to get into. But, uh, and Tracy, the youngest one, uh, uh, it took her a long time, and she didn't drink like I did and that sort of thing, but she drank enough alcohol that uh, uh, she started attending Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I don't remember, maybe six months ago, and, and that was interrupted when some money showed her hand, and she got in a car drunk and hit a tree. So when she came back into AA this last time, uh, there's something a little more, more she's more motivated, it seems to me, uh, than what she was, and she's kind of going through her line. Tracy's the little girl that when I went into that nut house, I knew she existed, but I had no memory of her. Uh, I, I knew we'd had that little girl, and my first memory of her is when I saw her on the night after Lloyd dropped me off at her folks' house. The next morning when we woke up, she was standing in the crib trying to shake the bars off it like I used to shake the bars. And uh, it was my first memory of her, uh, uh, with that. So uh, she she spends about half the time up with us because she lives in a little bitty town south of Indianapolis where the AA is a little different than that. So she comes up and spends some time with us, and the sponsor comes and gets her, and then she's going through the book and the steps uh, with that. Now, in fact, just last uh, Wednesday, I had to take her back down to that little town she lives nearby and, and uh, uh, through the hills and the hollers. And so she went to court for her DUI and, and uh, that came out in pretty good shape. She's got a few things to do, but she knows what they are. And dealing along, she was more important about getting, worried about getting to her meeting that night than anything else uh, with that. But the only reason I'm telling you this is I've been working with... Uh, a guy that's about 50 years old and, and, and a family man, successful family man, and a good businessman and that sort of thing. We've been going through the steps on Wednesday nights, and we were going through the amends recently. And he's discussed, you know, he's done the same same things we all had. He, he, he's uh, lied about the money. He, there's infidelity going on. He was caught up in pornography. He was... Uh, all these other things that, that's, that's going on in AA and men don't normally talk about. But uh, uh, it's, uh, we were talking about how do we make amends to those, I'm talking about those of us who have long-term relationships, marriages or, or if they're not marriages, but long-term relationships. How do we make amends for that? Not, not, just, not just the hell we caused them, but the more subtle things that we don't think about that, that probably drove them nuts and we really haven't heard about. It's Tom and I are talking about ways to do that, and uh, uh, I invited Julie to come out and join us in that conversation uh, uh, because uh, uh, is there more to be done than what we've done so far is the question. 
What have we missed? And I wanted to hear from the bride of what they think more we could be doing with that. Now, I'm in a situation where Julie's health is, is, is taking a turn. She has Parkinson's, and that's disabling in a number of ways. And so I've been helping more around the house. I've been cooking more. I, I, I just do more. I've always done some of that, but, but uh, uh, I'm doing a lot of that and, and trying to be more and more available to her uh, as part of that. But I really don't see that as a mend. I think that's part of the deal that I made 55 years ago this month when the priest said, for better, for worse. So I don't really see that as an amend. So I'm having a little trouble with the term living amends. Now, how much of that is real and how much of that is bullshit? Uh, uh, I, I think, who said bullshit first? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, um, I, uh, I just keep looking at that and what else we've been doing. And Tom's working on that, and I've been bringing that up more and more. It's kind of interesting. Now, Tracy, I was talking about her a minute ago. Uh, when, uh, flashback, when she was in high school, she had come home drunk one night. And I wake up to she and her mother screaming each other in the kitchen. And I made the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. And I promise you it will never happen again. I am never going to get between two women who are fighting again. <laughs> Damn, that's dumb. Uh, you, that, that's a no winner. But anyway... Uh, I do get them separated. Julie goes back to her room and shuts the door. And, uh, uh, and I'm trying to get Tracy to go to her room. And she starts getting in a fight, screaming in my face, telling me everything is wrong about me and this family and, and all this stuff and all this thing. And I don't know what they did. Which, I mean, she literally is right here screaming at me. And she says, you want to hit me, don't you? And she was right. I, by God, wanted to hit her. And... Uh, she just kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. So finally I stepped back and I slapped her as hard as I could with an open hand, but it knocked her over the bed diagonally uh, to the other side of the bed. And then I felt so bad I just left it and I shut the door and, and uh, I didn't see her in the morning. I got up and left up early, I think, so I didn't have to see her. But when I was coming home that night, she opened the door and she was black and blue from here to here. My hand had covered her whole face like that when I had hit her like that. And, and, and I, I, it was just revulsed. I was so revulsed by that I can't, I can't explain it to you. It was just awful. And she said, Daddy, don't do that. I had this coming. She says, I had this coming. Well, the answer to that is that's not true. No daughter in the world deserves that. They don't have that coming no matter what happens. Period. And that's so... I, I have been trying to say making living amends, make amends for that by all the stuff I've been doing for Tracy since she's trying to get sober, taking her to meetings. Is, I stay hell out of her program. I don't, I don't, none of her program work comes out of my mouth. If any's at the same thing, it ain't coming from me. I, I've learned one lesson, and that, that's one of them, too. I don't think I can help a child of mine uh, with their program that, that well, at least at this point. Uh, uh, 
So I got this this current stuff going on between working with Tom and uh, about that and, and this whole situation with Tracy, and I, I, I got a hunch that I can be as diligent as I possibly can with the amends from now till till I'm gone, and I'm afraid I won't have all the amends made. I think I'm going to be creating new problems somewhere somehow. I am still incredibly careful, uh, capable becoming so self-absorbed that, 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 that uh, I promise you I'm not thinking of those I love the most. My bride, my daughters, some friends, uh, uh, and that. I know I can. I can completely discard them in an instant, and I can do that. So I, that's one of the reasons I was glad to talk about amends here, because when I did get through those amends and, and got Bob and the rest of them paid back and all that sort of thing, there was a permanent change in my mind. We've not been in that kind of trouble financially since. We've been a little smarter about what we do that way. And I've behaved in, in, in the other way. There's been no infidelity. Uh, and uh, uh, I think probably somehow uh, my life has taken a more stable point. All I've got to do now to keep it there is work with others every chance I get. And I get a lot of chances. On Monday nights, I'm taking 12, 13 men and women through the book on the stuff right now uh, with that. And uh, I don't know, the phone drives Julie nuts. I kind of like it. But I'll get off the phone some night. She says, can I have some time with you, please? And I say, of course, and we turn the phone off and, uh, and we take care of that. So, so I see my life now as an AA member. I don't think I'm ever going to be a... What's another term for the old timers? Uh, huh? Elder statesman. Elder statesman, yeah. Yeah. That's probably not going to work for me. So <laughs> thank you very much. I'm glad to have been here. Thank you, Gary, and uh, we will close this meeting with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. 